the kingdom was um, his favorite subject. So that's why we're looking at it all the way through to uh, end of November when we kick off uh, over there. That was his favorite subject. His favorite subject wasn't church. It wasn't conversion. It wasn't the Eucharist. It wasn't money. It wasn't heaven. It wasn't hell. It wasn't what time services we should have. It wasn't whatever. His uh, favorite subject was all about this kingdom. And his kingdom was massively subversive. And what we want to do throughout this whole series is look at the ways that Jesus described his kingdom. Remember, we looked at how Jesus was a bit of a tinker because he was always talking about the kingdom, but never really defined it, which is a little bit frustrating, isn't it? But, but that's the way of life when you follow Jesus, isn't it? He always has the upper hand. Uh, he always holds all the cards, isn't it? So, so he never defined it, but he described it continually. And we're looking at lots of different ways, lots of different stories and the Lord's Prayer and different ways of trying to understand what this kingdom is. So today, the way we're going to land it today is we're going to look at particularly about Jesus and empire, okay, or Jesus and politics. Jesus and empire, Jesus and politics. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, so uh, the youth love this subject. They, uh, they love it. Uh, and so that's what we're going to explore. And it, doesn't, it can't help but feel quite relevant uh, at the moment, can it? When uh, it's, it's slightly complex, to say the least, isn't it? Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, whether you're in, out, or whatever, green, yellow, red, wherever you are, blue even, that actually it is just a mess, isn't it, quite frankly? So we want to look at a little bit about Jesus and the kingdom and understand how he challenged and resisted the Roman Empire of the day, okay? So for those who have grown up in churches where Jesus is all about dying for your sins and all about whisking you off to heaven, you lucky thing, when you die, uh, you may not have been aware that actually most of Jesus' message wasn't really about that. It was actually about how do we deal with this oppressive um, regime, this structure of injustice that kept um, 90% of people uh, in Jesus' time in poverty and 10 per- the 10% had all the money. Does that sound familiar sort of uh, time? So Jesus was really fascinated and really at work in saying, the kingdom of God has arrived. This new kingdom has arrived. And that everyone would be saying, well, tell us a little bit about this kingdom. But before they did that, they would say kingdom. That's a funny word you use in there, Jesus, because, because all I know is this, is that we've got this chap called Caesar who rules over this whole area, and he says it's his kingdom. But Jesus is using the same word kingdom that the Roman Empire used of the word kingdom. And then he really gets under their skin because everybody in those days would say, well, Caesar is Lord, isn't he? And Caesar rose from the dead. They all thought Caesar rose from the dead and is seated with all the other gods. So you worship him. And the early disciples came along and said, no, it's not Caesar who's in charge. It's not like we should actually have someone who kind of exploits the poor uh, in charge. Actually, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in charge. And his message was all about what would the world really look like if God reigned? You know, the beautiful thing about Jesus, when he spoke about the kingdom of God, he never called God king. I love that. He always called God father. He always could, uh, you know, good father, a loving father. He never really went on about a kingdom and that, the kind of patriarchal nature, but rather this kind of loving family that Jesus is sprouting on the earth. So that's what we're looking at, and I've completely gone off my notes because I just like all of that stuff. So um, we're going to have a little reading of this, okay? And I've just landed it on Esther, um, and um, the reason I've landed it on Esther is because it's got lots of long words in it, and I'm dyslexic, and I have no, when I see long words that I'm not familiar with, I cannot um, make head nor tail of them. So, uh, so it's going to be a verse from Luke chapter 1, a verse from Luke chapter 2, and a verse from Luke chapter 3. Look at that. 
Good, I'm glad that's uh, exciting. So, uh, uh, okay, so um, I have, might have to, it's just that one there, yeah. Hang about. Hang about. <laughs> Yeah, try it. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. That's the chapter one. See why I didn't choose to read it? Uh, and then chapter two, this one's a bit more familiar. This will remind you of Christmas. Where's this going? Uh, Christmas, what is it? Uh, uh, <laughs> just the end of verse two. So in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. There you go. Does it make you think of Christmas? Just a few little gifts Esther would do. And uh, chapter 3, and then down to verse 2. So, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother, Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Fantastic, thank you, yes. Yeah, let's cheer with that, yeah. I would have absolutely no chance, no chance whatsoever. So um, the reason I mention that is, is simply this. What I want us to grasp is this, that the message of Jesus and the message of uh, the Bible is intensely personal, it's a really personal message. It is about personal transformation. The message and the ministry of Jesus was taken us from death to life, was taken us to kind of from uh, exodus, and, you know, from the, the bondage of sin to kind of victory of Jesus, all that kind of stuff. It's intensely personal. It's about how we change as people to reflect something of the nature of Jesus. So it's intensely personal, the message of Jesus in the Bible. But it is also, and this is often underrated, intensely political. It's not just about how, you know, James gets a bit better and a less bad-tempered. It's actually about how does this community change that we are living in? How do we shop on the internet? Where do we buy our coffee from? Where do we buy our clothes from? What kind of bank do we bank with? Hopefully it's Smile, everybody. It's the most ethical bank. You're going to quickly change now. And uh, it's the, the message of Jesus is as much about politic and political transformation as it is about personal. In other words, Jesus is intently, intensely interested on how, what this world is becoming like. He created it after all. He wants this world to reflect the nature and the beauty of Christ. And he wants it to rep reflect the kingdom. So his message is intensely personal, intensely political. And the way that we hold these two things together that sometimes are in conflict is by going back to the kingdom. When it's all about the kingdom of Jesus, these two things sit really comfortably hand in hand. I remember when I worked for an MP, um, I think I've told this story before, there's this chap called Stan who uh, ran continuously uh, to get help. In, you know, he complained about his house, then he complained about the light outside his house. He constant complaining about everything that was wrong with him. And I was the, the caseworker who looked after uh, that area, Newington 
ward in the Elephant and Castle. And we solved every single one of his problems. He had seven problems, one after another, kept bringing up. And after the seventh we solved it, he still wasn't happy. We got him to move his house. We got him to do this, all of that. And at the end of the day, I wanted to say, Stan, what I really think you need is a good dose of the love of Jesus and just to know you're all right, God's all right, and we get by in this, this world. But I've also grown up in churches where actually we'd say to Stan, Stan, we won't change anything about your, your physical circumstances. They don't matter. What matters is your eternal soul. Where will you spend heaven or hell? And it's overly personal and under-political or overly political and under-personal. When you speak about the kingdom, we want to try and hold these two things together. Does that make sense? Yeah, we want to hold it together. It's the, the kingdom of Jesus. So what I'm going to do now, we're going to do a little bit of uh, history together. Is that all right? Everyone's favorite subject, just what you need, particularly if you're sweltering hot over that side uh, of that. We're going to think a little bit about Jesus and the world he lived in. And we're going to think a little bit about all the politics of the time and how people responded. And then we're going to end it by looking at the way Jesus was a political activist, okay? So if you're interested in the kind of the political activism stuff, I'll, I'll let you know when we get there and you can kind of uh, come back in, as it were. Uh, if you're a historian, you're, you're going to love these little uh, few moments. So the re- I want to explain about Jesus as well. There are two um, massive factors in the social world of Jesus that he grew up in, two outstanding factors. One was um, Judaism. Jesus was a Jew through and through. And the, um, the religion of Judaism and all, uh, all that's entailed with that, that shaped him massively. The other area that shaped him was the Roman Empire. He grew up in the Roman Empire. He grew up in a place that was um, a dictatorship. He grew up in a place that was exploiting the poor. He grew up in a place that um, had a really low um, mortality rate. It's mortality life, how long you live for. It's how long people live for. Hi, but hello. Hi. Anyway, people didn't live a long time back in those days. Uh, they did if they lived in the city um, because they would, that's where the rich people would live, but the poor people, the peasants that Jesus reached out to lived in towns and villages. Hence, Jesus never really went to the cities. He went to towns and villages where the, what they called the peasants were. And that place shaped him massively. And in all those readings that uh, Esther read to us, chapter 1 talks about, um, there's, this, this is kind of the, the background. That you, it's worth getting if you want to get the political activism stuff. But if you don't want to get it, I will let you know when we get to exciting stuff. So the first one is Herod, okay? You've heard, you can sort of do a little boo for Herod because no one ever uh, likes Herod. Herod, okay? So yeah, Herod. So he's in chapter 1, okay? And he basically uh, is a local chap that the Romans liked and said, I oh, will make you king over the whole area of Israel and everything like that. And um, no one liked him, uh, but the Romans liked him because he built big buildings, okay? He was great with buildings, got all the money from the poor, and then made massive, made big buildings, basically. That's what he went around, invested in lots of buildings, and he made a big statue to, to Caesar at the time, and a big temple to Caesar, and he kept the Jews happy and built a big temple for the Jews, and, but nobody liked him because he was completely exploiting everybody for their money. So then Herod, uh, he knew he was going to die, he was getting old in years, and he had a hunch, I'm going to die, that happens to us all, um, he was concerned that nobody was going to um, uh, mourn his death, and so he killed 2,000 people. 2,000 local people, so when he died, at least there'd be mourning going around. So he's the chap who wanted to kill the babies. Remember, remember the story at Christmas? So that's him. So Herod cops it. Off he goes. He dies. God 
rest his soul? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, God can work out what he wants to do with his soul. So uh, that's uh, Herod. And then uh, Herod had three little boys, just like myself. Look at that. Oh. He had three boys called Iron, Wesley. No, he didn't. And uh, they're all short little things, but nice. But uh, no, he, he had three. And, um, and that was the second reading. So he ha- I can't remember all the names that scribbled down. But anyway, he, uh, what Rome, uh, the empire decided to do is we're going to split this area into three bits. There's a north and there's a south, the north-south divide. And there's a little bit, I think, to the east. Um, and so there's a chap in the north, the sun in the north, the sun in the south, and uh, as in S-O-N, not sunny, and then somebody in the east. But the Romans weren't quite happy with that, so it's divide and conquer, and they thought the sun in the south had Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was like loads of money was going to Jerusalem, it's where everybody went to worship and all that kind of stuff. They thought, we want our own person in there, we don't want this kind of sun chappy, whoever he is. Uh, We'll kick him out and we'll put our own governor in place. And he was called... Pontius Pilate. You see where it's going, Ben, yeah? Uh, so he's called, he's called Pontius Pilate. And that's the context of the day, that Jesus has, is growing up in the light of this first, the first King Herod, who, who was just bloodthirsty and liked buildings, building work and bloodthirsty and all those sorts of things. And then it's split into those different areas. So when Jesus faces Pilate, he's a, he's a re- reflection of the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people in those days were being dominated by this oppressive military regime. Okay, you got it? And there are four responses that they had to that day. Now, after this little thing, we're just going to take a, a moment to chat to one another uh, about politics. So there's four um, responses, basically, to this kind of highly political day. I don't know where I am in my... That's perfect. There I am. Okay, so the Jews are working out, how do we respond to this political dictatorship? How do we respond to Boris um, political dictator? How, how, uh, how do we do that? So there's four, sorry, did I say something? There's four, uh, four responses. One was the zealots, okay? So the zealots, you'll find these scattered around the New Testament. Zealots were like, um, we don't like the people in charge, so we're going to start a violent revolution. We're going to pick up arms, like in Shrek. You know, when they go after Shrek, uh, we're going to overthrow them, okay? So that's the zealots. So they're into kind of violent revolution. So that would be, you, you know, like we, don't, we thought we had a dictatorship here and we'd say, come on, let's uh, pick up some arms, uh, not literally arms, but, you know, uh, some weapons, and we'll overthrow uh, the dictator. So that was one option. There's loads of zealots. At the other extreme were the Essens. Sounds good, doesn't it? Essens, Essens. And they were a kind of, all of these were religious Jewish, uh, from the Jewish religions. The Essenes were like, this stuff is so bad in our society. It's so awful. It's so corrupt. I don't want any part of this structure. I don't want to pay any taxes. I don't want to engage whatsoever. I'm going to the desert. So off they all went, a little gang, off to the desert, and they had this kind of, that's where they think John the Baptist was, they had this kind of puritanical, uh, blissfully happy life in the desert, which doesn't sound like a bad response, really, does it, really? Just think, can't be bothered with all this, I'm going to go and live on an island somewhere with Bear grills or whatever. So that's the, that's the, um, that's the essence. And then you've got the um, Pharisees. The Pharisees were thinking... What the real problem is here is that we're not being distinct enough in our lifestyle. You know, we need to be more kind of distinct in our lifestyle. And people need to look at us and think, they're definitely Jews. You know, you know they're definitely Jews. They're making a real kind of impact. So the Pharisees said, we're going to obey the Torah more and more. We're going to obey the Bible, as it were, more. They wouldn't call it the Bible. But we're going to obey that. And that's the way they're going to deal with it. It's just get more holy, okay? They're not going to complain about the Romans. They're just going to get more holy. But the Sadducees, they were, as you know, 
Sadducee, yeah, it's the Sadducees. Their response was a bit different. They were like, but we could uh, benefit, so let's, let's sidle up with the Romans. Let's collaborate a little bit with the Romans, and we, we get their money, and we do what they say, and it kind of keeps them happy, and, and, and every, everything's all right. So they kind of were collaborators. They're like, well, they're not too bad, these Romans, really. I mean, yeah, they might be killing everybody in dictators, but on the whole, they built, built us a temple. It's quite nice, isn't it? And they give us bread. So, so we, we collaborate with them. So do you see those four responses? Violent overthrow, get out and go, you know, everyone abandon, go into the hills, get more godly, or just kind of collaborate a little bit more. And Jesus had none of those responses. They're the four responses. So just to keep us alert, because it's hot, it's sweaty, one or two are dropping off, and you might snore in a minute. So uh, turn to your neighbor and say, what was your favorite reaction? What was your favorite response? If you had to join any four of them, just for fun, what would it be? You don't really, not for fun, sorry, that belittles it, doesn't it? So yeah, pick a response, any response. Okay, then, uh, let's, um, I will, the, the introverts amongst us, I will relieve you of that uncomfortable moment. Uh, uh, so, um, just out of interest, who, who was, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but um, no one's being recorded, uh, but uh, there is a camera here. So who, no, there's a, uh, Essence, who was an Essence? Who was a, yes, I thought there's a lot of us, yeah, yeah, <laughs> just like run away, basically. <laughs> Jen wants to know if you had to camp, no, no, they had lovely stone, um, yeah, they, they knew, villas, it would be, it'd be a villa in the desert, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Without a care in the world, yeah. Uh, any, anybody here want to be a zealot? Yeah, Charmaine and Dave, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Just stay away with them over coffee. And <laughs> no, not really. Uh, anyone, here, anyone here a Pharisee? The problem with that is so associated with hypocrisy, isn't it? Uh, uh, in our little evangelical world. Anybody be a Pharisee? Yeah, a little bit of Pharisee. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know where you are. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, you'd like to be a Pharisee, Alex. That's a very good Green Party point. Yes, thank you, Alex. Green Party treasurer there. Yes. What about uh, anybody, anyone, anyone tempted by the Sadducees? You know, you could do a bit of good. You compromise. You know, you get a bit of money. Freddie's up for that. Entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the... Yeah, well, you never know. So, um, so it's interesting, but they were basically, in essence, the four responses people were having in that time to the Roman Empire. So it's a big problem for Jews, and we'll look at perhaps a bit more of the, the, the Jewish framework next week. So we're looking at kind of the empire framework. But the challenge was that they thought um, they should own their own land, which is not a bad idea in one sense of this, this is their land. They thought God had promised it them, but they're being dominated by a political and a military kind of government that was dictating what they should do. And so they had all these different responses to try and work out how do they respond. Jesus comes along and uses the language of the kingdom, uses language of, of lordship, what his early, uh, earlier disciples does uh, do, and make these incredible claims about what Jesus has done through his life. And he begins to resist the Roman Empire and challenge the Roman Empire. So he doesn't do an essence as challenging as it was, like John the Baptist. He doesn't nip out to the desert and hang out in the desert. He doesn't do a zealot and use violence. In fact, when violence was used against 
you know, that Peter used um, violence, the founder of our church used violence. Uh, you know, Jesus put the ear back on, didn't he? He said that he lived by the sword, he died by the sword. He wasn't just a Pharisee of just, it just you've got to live better. You've got to live. He was like, actually, you've got to have compassion and do something. It wasn't just a Sadducee kind of colliding with the Romans because when they asked about paying your taxes, he just said, well, go to a fish, go, go, go and get some money from a fish. That'd be lovely if that still worked, wouldn't it? And, uh, you know, you pay your tax. So he's trying to kind of, work out this new path. So the early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, weren't really, weren't really known as Christians. We were known as people of the, the way. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, it is partly an exclusive statement, but actually there's something that Jesus is saying, I'm the way. This is the way you walk in. These are the footprints of Jesus. This is the way to live. If you're going to live well and you want to live right, this is the way. And so what we're going to look at really, really quickly, and we'll look at it more um, next week. No pressure, Sarah, who's going to be preaching. But we're going to just look at a few of the uh, sayings of Jesus and the ways of Jesus of how he resisted this empire and maybe begin to think a little bit about how does that translate into our lives today. Just before we do that, I think one of the biggest challenges we have that Jesus in one sense didn't face as the earthly Christ was that our empire is a bit more complicated. So back in the day, it was the Roman Empire, that was it. These days, you know, you've got a democratic system which sort of works but doesn't work. You have huge companies that have more influence than nations. You know, Apple's got more money than the US government, you know. You have, you have uh, Amazon, Google, Yahoo, all the, you have so, so many different empires that you're dealing with. It's not as straightforward world that we live in anymore where it's just like this one evil dictator you know but actually we've got to deal with it on so many different fronts but we're going to look at a couple of ways that um jesus did the way of jesus so the first thing um is some of the sayings of jesus that you will be familiar with so i haven't got them scribbled up there but you remember when jesus says someone slaps you on the right cheek uh, uh let them slap you on the other cheek on the left cheek you know that kind of saying so so we often see it and rightly so that um it's like just sounds cool doesn't it but there's a little bit of anxiety of like does that just mean I let anyone do what they want do, do, do you know what I mean where do I you know because if someone slaps you you know even a godly man like Ben you know he might even be tempted to tickle them or something Ben will probably <laughs> tickle wouldn't he wouldn't slap but but it's, it's extremely hard not to want to do something physical so remember in the old testament the Hebrew uh, part of the scriptures there's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth now, the reason it says that is genius because actually, if you um, pull out my eye, it's a lovely thought, if you pull out my eye, I don't want to just pull out your eye. I want to do a lot more damage to you. Do you see? So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was limiting um, revenge. And actually, it was teaching us something that my eye is as valuable as your eye, a life for a life, you know. It was actually trying to limit revenge rather than encouraging it. But Jesus comes along and says, someone steps on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek. Now, what was that all about? Is that just like let people do what you want and walk all over you? Does it mean you don't stand up for your rights? Does it mean that as Christians we shouldn't stand up to politics and when people are uh, being mistreated? And there's nothing to do with that. It's all about the politics of the day. A Roman had the absolute... Um, right to go up to um, a peasant, a normal, pe which we would have been as, as Alex made uh, out, and slap you on the right cheek. And the way they do that is with, the back, with their right hand on the back of their hand, like that. That's how they do it. They slap you on the... Have a go. No. Uh, uh, it, they would slap you. Okay. And so you, 
by turning the other cheek in those days, if someone, you'd only slap someone, <laughs> it's a strange culture, but you'd only slap someone with the front of your hand who is your equal, who is your peer. You'd never, you'd always, they'd always like that. You've probably seen it in movies. People who are below you, slap them in the back of your, your hand. That was the, that was, and so that's when they did it. They slapped the right cheek on the back of the hand. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's like, you're, make, you're making a statement that you're their equal. You're not just lying down and taking it. You're saying, well, you, you, you're, you're, you're treating me like a peasant. I'm going to show you my other cheek. Now slap me on the other cheek and treat me as an equal. When Jesus says, go the extra mile, he's not doing some kind of those who are kind of like have a martyr complex and we love sort of doing things for people. I don't know, you know, some of you are uh, proper Christians and like doing things like that, you know. Uh, and you think, oh, no, it's not a problem. I'll just go the extra mile or, I'll, you know, I'll stay longer and clean everything and, oh, I'll wash all the windows and, or whatever it is, you know. Um, and that's some of that's brilliant and that's a good ethic to have, isn't it? But back in that day... There's only one group of person who could tell you to go an extra mile. Roman soldiers. So a Roman soldier could come up to you and say, Matt, I've got all my armor, all my globber here. Uh, here it is. You've got to walk a mile with all my stuff, and I'll walk alongside you and watch. That's what they did. They were, it was a tool of political oppression. I'll force you to walk a mile carrying all my stuff. And Jesus says, when they do that, do it two miles. And then just watch them disobey orders of their governor, which they wouldn't be allowed to do. And this awkward transaction take place where you're saying, no, I'm going to carry on, actually. I'm, I'm, you know, I know it's becoming me. And uh, you know, I'm going to carry on carry, taking all your stuff. And they're not allowed because they're disobeying orders because they're only allowed to do the one. So Jesus is saying, just, it's a non-resistant, it's a non-violent resistance of saying, I'm your peer, actually. When Jesus said, if someone sues you for your tunic, take your cloak as well. Peasants only had two pieces of clothes, your tunic and your cloak. Jesus is saying, give them everything you have, because nakedness is to, in those days, as it is today, to have someone um, exposed in nakedness was utter shame, utter, utter shameful. It's all linked to the Garden of Eden and all that sort of stuff. So Jesus is saying, shame them. If they're going to sue you, if someone's asking someone for a tunic, that is, you are exploiting the poorest of the poor of the poor. That's all they have. And Jesus is on their side. And he's saying, well, do something else and just completely and utterly shame them. All the way through, Jesus is showing them and speaking to the Roman Empire, saying, this is the way you resist this empire. This is how, this is the way of Jesus, the way we stand up to him. It's going the extra mile. It's all about compassion. The next thing, and I'm, I'm drawing to, a, to close and we're finished with some song, was the third reading that um, Esther brought to us, which was all, um, sorry, no, it's that, the other page, <laughs> uh, was all about um, the big guns. Did, did you, did, I'm not talking about your biceps, Tom. Um, it's, it was all about, um, uh, it was all about, you know, this king, I can't even pronounce their names, this king and this person, the high priest, and gives a whole little list of stuff. And then it says, and the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness in the wilderness. And there's something about that, the way of Jesus, that, that, that Luke's writing it, and he mentions all the, all the big chiefs of the day. Every single authority of the day is mentioned, you know. It, you know, in the year, what are we, 2019, you know, when Boris was prime minister and the queen was on the throne and uh, parliament was trying to do something and this was happening and this was happening and all that sort of stuff, the word of the Lord came and everybody's thinking, or, you know, it was Archbishop Justin Welby and the Bishop of 
Durham was on his throne or whatever, and uh, the Bishop of Dudley, who was enjoying herself or himself on their, in their new palace in Cradley or whatever, and you're expecting, the, that's where it is, uh, you're expecting the word of God to go there. And it says, now the word of the Lord came to a bunch of ragtag people sitting at Provision House in Dudley High Street because Jesus always works from the edges to the center, not from the center to the edges. And the way of Jesus is always at the edge. Why does Jesus really want to do something in Dudley? Because it's just on the edge. It's so needy. There's so much opportunity. So many exciting things happening here as well. But it's on the edge. There has never been a thriving Anglican church in the history of Dudley. We've been here 800 years, but we've never filled the building. We've never had a thriving community that, that... that loved Christ and showed his love and reflected his love to a community. It's on the edges where Jesus is always, always at work. And that's one of the reasons why I think God is doing something here. And I think something really, really special. So what we have to do is work out how do we, as Jesus' people in this day and age, and this is partly, I'm setting up uh, another aspect of this series, how do we reflect that non-violent resistance challenge that Jesus had to his empire? How do we do it? Does it mean that maybe we don't buy from Amazon as much, those who do? I do uh, regularly. But does it mean that actually we don't buy from them as much because actually they're putting out the local um, storeholders? Does it mean that actually when we're in Dudley and you're hanging out, or if you're an old Swinford person like I used to be back in the day, weeks ago, uh, uh, and you've got to work out where you're going to have that coffee. Are you going to nip to Nero down the high street, or are you going to go to uh, uh, you know, Old Swinford Coffee Lounge and get your stamp? And, uh, because actually, a pound is, is economically true. If you spend a pound in a local independent shop, that pound gets recycled all around the town a lot more than it does if you spend a pound at Costa. It goes right up to the top It never comes back into the community. You buy local, it impacts local. It's a way of challenging the kind of dominant empire of the day. How are we going to do that? We've got to work out, and I don't think we kind of work it out, that's the solution. I think we go on through the ways and the means and the guidance of Jesus. You know, buying our our books uh, locally rather than, or from places that uh, that pay their taxes rather than those places um, that don't. 